seated. And as you're seated, let me invite you to join me, please, in prayer. Father, we've just sung about your great love for us, demonstrated fully and perfectly and ultimately in Jesus Christ and particularly in his suffering on the cross for our sins. God, thank you for your great love. Thank you that in Christ you have paid the penalty for our sins, you have taken our guilt, and you have removed the condemnation that is ours and that we deserve because of our sins. God, we give you praise today, and that is ours through faith in Christ as we trust in him as our one and only Savior. And God, our prayer as a congregation this morning is that that love, the love of Christ, the love of God demonstrated in the gospel would be spread unto all of the nations of the world, all of the people groups, among all of the countries throughout all of the world. God, that is our calling, that is our mission, and help us as your people today to care about those in need. And particularly together, God, we pray for the country of Afghanistan this morning. We think of the 72 people groups in the country of Afghanistan, and of those 72, God, 67 are unreached people groups meaning that 99% of the people, the individuals in Afghanistan, are unreached. And so, Father, we pray for this country and for all of these people groups, and especially those unreached, that you would raise up laborers and thrust them out into this harvest field that is white unto harvest. And yet, Father, we know that this would be an incredibly dangerous and difficult place for people to share the gospel of Jesus Christ because the persecution there would be intense. And so we pray, God, for you to raise up those who would have the courage and the conviction that you are calling them to this country and to these people groups so that they might hear of the love that we just sung about. God, we lift Afghanistan together to you this morning. And we also, God, as we think about a little closer to home, we want to pray God, for Redeeming Grace Church just across the city. We thank you for Pastor Josh Brown, who was here on staff at our church and who, with others from our church, went out to start this church across town. And God, we pray for them as they're worshiping, even now as we are. We pray that you would bless their gathering, that you would continue to grow that congregation. Be with Josh as he preaches your word this morning. There, use Use his preaching and the truth of your word as it is explained and as it is applied, God, to bring people to Christ who may be there who do not yet know Christ and to build up those in their faith who do know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. God, be with Pastor Josh, be with Bree, their family as they lead and others who are involved in leadership there. God, grow that congregation and I pray that soon that that church would be ready to and desiring to start and plant another church and that there would be a multiplication of churches throughout this region and throughout this nation and to the ends of the earth. And Father, we also think of a few other churches in our city this morning that are a part of an association of churches that we're a part of. We pray for them this morning. We pray for Calvary Baptist Church and for Pastor Josh Bonner. God bless that church as they worship today and build that church. Make it all that you intend for it to be and may that church be effective in reaching people. For Jesus Christ. We also lift up Mercy Gate Church and their pastor, Kenneth Brock, another church that was planted in the last couple of years in our vicinity. God, thank you for Kenneth. Thank you for his passion for evangelism. And I pray that you would cause many people through that church's witness to come to know Jesus as their Lord and as their Savior. And we also pray finally for Christ Church. We lift that church to you one of our neighboring churches, and we pray you'd bless them and grow that church and help that church to be effective in reaching people for Jesus. Be with Garvin Golden, their pastor, God. Use him as he leads them and use them together to make a kingdom difference. And Father, as we think about our church this morning, we lift up Pastor Joel, who's gone this morning, our worship and music pastor. 
who's vacationing with family and enjoying time in Portland, I pray that you would give them a great time out of the routine and the responsibilities that they have here, that they would enjoy one another, that they would have safe travels, and that you would bring them back safely. God, we thank you for Pastor Joel and his family and pray that you would bless his ministry as he continues to serve us and to serve your people here. And Father, we pray also as a congregation that you would guide us as we in this year are focusing particularly on prayer and discipleship. We pray there'd be more prayer among the members of this congregation in terms of private prayer and that we would come together as your people, particularly on the first and third Sunday nights normally, to gather together for corporate prayer. God, help us to see our utter dependence on you and therefore to call out to you for power and for wisdom in prayer as a church. And God, help our triads as they have begun and others are beginning where we can be involved in discipling one another as we read the Bible together. God, bless those gatherings and those groups as we build one another up in our most holy faith. And finally, I pray for Pastor Tanner, our pastor of students and family ministry as he preaches your word this morning. Thank you for him. Use him, God, and use your word in Psalm 60 to speak to our hearts about Jesus and what he's done for us as well as to teach us what it means to live in a way that is in alignment with that gospel that was foreshadowed in all of Scripture. And so we pray that you would bless Pastor Tanner. We give you thanks for him as he preaches now. In Jesus' name. Well, good morning, church. How are we doing this morning? Since I'm usually the greeter, I feel like I have to ask that question. Uh, So uh, it's good to see you all this morning. As you can see behind me, we are in another summer in the book of Psalms. What we've been doing is we started, I can't remember the exact Psalm, 57? 56, sorry. Uh, We started in Psalm 56 earlier in the summer and have been just kind of working our way through the book of the Psalms. And this morning I'll be preaching Psalm 60, which is going to be found on page 478 in those blue pew Bibles in front of you or below you. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, I know Brent has made this offering to people as well, but if you don't have a Bible, feel free to uh, come talk to me, talk to Brent, um, or maybe just take that Bible with you. We would love for you to have a Bible of your own. And as you're turning to page 147, sorry, let me say that number again. Math is really hard. Uh, As you turn to page 478 in your Bibles or to Psalm 60, I want to tell you a little story, okay? So in 2016, An unlikely candidate ran for the highest office in the United States. He was considered brash, bold, and outlandish in so many different ways. Many viewed him as as crass and totally appalling and extremely unappealing to the very constituents that he would be serving. The very idea of this man even being fit for office was completely out of the question. For him to even run seemed like a totally idiotic idea. I'm sure you all know who exactly who I'm talking about, but if you don't, this is his name. Joseph Allen Maldonado Passage, a.k.a. Joe Exotic, a.k.a. The Tiger King. If you're not really familiar with Joe Exotic, because I only heard a couple chuckles, so there's only a few people that know who I'm talking about, but if you're not familiar with Joe Exotic, that's really okay, and I hope you can leave Uh, this morning, only just knowing what you need to know here in this introduction. But all you really need to know is that he attempted and failed in both a presidential campaign as well as a gubernatorial campaign in the great state of Oklahoma, my home state, unfortunately, with uh, very little background in either lawmaking or politics. It's not a surprise that even with, honestly, a well-somewhat thought-out plan, He failed in both attempts just drastically. And if we're really looking at this honestly and in truth be told, the primary reason that Mr. Exotic was probably running was probably for nothing more than a little bit of notoriety, a little bit of fame, and and just wanting to expose his brand out in the world a little bit more. Well, likewise, what we find in our passage this morning is a vain attempt from the nation of Israel and from King David to do the Lord's will without really even considering or planning for the Lord to be a part of it. 
And now since they've rushed into this decision, they've rushed into these opportunities, they're in a really tough spot. They find themselves in trouble. And so we read about their response, their reaction in the midst of this trouble in our psalm this morning. So please join with me as I read Psalm 60. And I'll begin in kind of that all caps text that's in your Bible as well. To the choir master, according to Shushan Edith, a victim of David, for instruction when he strove with Aram Naharaim and with Aram Zobah, and when Joab on his return struck down 12,000 of Edom in the Valley of Salt. O God, you have rejected us, broken our defenses. You have been angry. Oh, restore us. You have made the land to quake. You have torn it open. Repair its breaches for its hotters. You have made your people see hard things. You have given us wine to drink that made us stagger. You have set up a banner for those who fear you, that they may flee to it from the bow, Selah, that your beloved ones may be delivered. Give salvation by your right hand and answer us. God has spoken in his holiness. With exaltation, I will divide up Shechem and portion out the vale of Succoth. Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. Ephraim is my helmet. Judah is my scepter. Moab is my wash basin. Upon Edom I cast my shoe. Over Philistia I shout in triumph. Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? Have you not rejected us, O God? You do not go forth, O God, with our armies. O grant us help against the foe, for vain is the salvation of man. With God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. The psalm is unbelievable, and I'm just going to get right into it. I think the main idea of this psalm and the main idea for this sermon this morning is this. It's vain are the plans of man, but valiant are the purposes of the Lord. Again, that main idea is vain are the plans of man, but valiant are the purposes of the Lord. Ultimately, what we're going to see is that any contrived plan that man has is totally dumb without God being present in it. And so we need God to intervene in our lives because without it, it's total vanity. I think we could really take out this psalm and just put it in the book of Ecclesiastes and it would just fit right along. Vanity is life without God, right? So we're going to work through this psalm through three different points and work through that main idea uh, just kind of as I see the text structured. So we're going to start off with a vain cry for help in verses 1 through 5. And then we're going to get to a verified promise in verses 6 through 8. And then in verses 9 through 12, we're going to, again, come back to a valiant prayer. So let's start off with that first point, that first set of verses in verses 1 through 5, a vain cry for help. Whenever we first dive into this passage, honestly, it's really shocking. We read how David, the author of this psalm, he's feeling uh, just like abandonment, and, and he's feeling so alone. And it's not just David that's feeling this way. It's, it's the collective people of God. And, and, and what's intriguing about this psalm is this isn't just like your normal life circumstance. It's in the middle of a couple of major battles that happened within the history of Israel in the time of the Davidic reign. So in 2 Samuel 8, we find the instance of David's battle with Aram Neharehim so that the kingdom of Israel could end up taking their part by the river Euphrates. We also find the other instance that the Psalms introduction talks about in 2 Samuel 10. And that's when Joab went and struck down all of these Edomites. And we find a more detailed part of that in 1 Chronicles 18. It's kind of measured depending on you know, what part of the Bible you're reading. Sometimes it's 12,000 Edomites that he struck down. Sometimes it's 18,000. It just kind of depends on what part of the book you're reading. But needless to say, these events were solidifying David's kingdom rule throughout that whole area in the Middle East. And it was working to expand Israel's kingdom and rule against all of these foreign nations. To be honest with you all, it was the pinnacle of David's kingdom. They were conquesting every single nation that they would face. Things for Israel, things for David, are going awesome. 
But why is it, why is it that the tone of this psalm seems totally opposite of somebody that's winning a bunch of battles? Why is it that we feel the pain and the agony over feeling like we're abandoned whenever we read this psalm in the midst of things going really well? Why does this psalm feel less like a praise of triumph and more like a lament? Well, what we need to do is we need to zoom out in this psalm and then zoom out as well in the larger context of David's life. Let's just first zoom out in the psalm itself. I think we can learn a bunch from the title of the psalm that we're reading this morning. Now, you might be wondering if uh, you're like, what's the title have to do with anything in the psalm that we're reading this morning? But, and how am I supposed to get anything out of he will tread down his foes? That's not what the title of the psalm is. All that actually is is just um, what the Bible publishers and editors call headings. Uh, So Bible publishers like the English Standard Version, which is edited by Crossway, um, they put these headings, which are just simple summations and simple titles for what they kind of think the thrust of the psalm is. But what we're talking about is the caps, all those letters and caps, just right before the psalm starts in verse 1. And many of the psalms have these titles, these headings, and some don't. But these titles are found in the original Hebrew scriptures. They're just as inspired as any of the psalms as well. So before you kind of just breeze through them in your Bible reading plan, I would encourage you to make sure that you read those because they provide helpful contextual information about the book of Psalms, the setting, and the author, and all sorts of different things. But this particular title, it's very interesting to us this morning because the author of the psalm, which is presumably David, as it says in the title, this psalm has explicit purpose that we're supposed to know about this morning. And as we read in the title, this psalm is created, it was written for instruction. Do you see that there in the text? It says, to the choir master, according to Shushan Edith, a victim of David for instruction. So the question that we ought to ask then, in light of seeing this title, is why might David, the nation of Israel, and even ourselves this morning, need the instruction that this psalm is trying to communicate? Well, I think, again, as we zoom out into the broader context of what's going on in David's life and in the Davidic kingdom, things are going well, but as we know, and as I just mentioned, this psalm is in the backdrop of 2 Samuel 8 and 2 Samuel chapter 10. From 2 Samuel chapter 8, and definitely from 2 Samuel chapter 10, only one chapter separates us from the eventual fall of David with Bathsheba, and then his eventual murder of her husband, Uriah the Hittite. The backdrop of this psalm is the eventual downfall of the Davidic kingdom. It's absolutely sobering. I could go on and on about why we need to make sure that we read our Bibles in context. But I think what we ought to focus on more this morning is how this psalm gives us real insight into the mind of David after this total fiasco in his life. Perhaps the reason that he writes a psalm and says that God has been angry and has rejected him and has made the people of Israel see hard things is because David is remembering his past actions and is realizing now that he is suffering the consequences for them. Perhaps maybe on even further reflection, David is realizing that the conquering of these nations, these pursuits of these nations that he was making with his armies weren't really about God extending his reign and rule, but for David and the kingdom itself to extend its reign and rule. Rather, instead of being a blessing to all the earth, I think David and the kingdom's idea was to just conquer, to take over, to subdue, to dominate. What we find here in verse 5, in these first five verses, it's an utter vain cry for help. These words that we find in these first five verses are the results of making plans, rushing into them, and executing them all without even considering or acknowledging the Lord. And now, they find themselves in a devastating circumstance where the Lord seemingly does not want to go out to battle with them, where he does not seemingly make them feel like he is actually on their side. 
These rash decisions would have cost, David would have cost the kingdom millions, I don't know about millions, but thousands of lives. It was so staggering for them, this resulted battle where God's not with them. It was so staggering for them that David compares it to having too much strong drink and that they're staggering. They can't even barely stand up. And, and, and they're seeing these difficult and hard things. Much of it, he's seeing people be slain for the sake of expanding this country instead of trying to bless the nations. Essentially, what is happening is they're functioning like atheists or people who don't even believe that God exists. And probably more pra- practically here, they're functioning like agnostics who only believe that God created and then just kind of left the humans to kind of do his will. They believe simply here in the rubber stamp of God instead of his actual promise. I'm sure that many of us have actually all been in that place before where we treat God like a notary public instead of the God of the universe who is intimately involved with his creation. We've probably sounded much like this. Let me try this on for you guys. I really want that house. Oh, but I forgot to pray through that decision. And now that mortgage seems a little too much for me to be able to pay. Or maybe it's this. I, I'm, I'm doing everything I can in my workplace. I'm going to levy a relationship here. I'm going to levy a, a task there. And, and maybe if I just have the right relationships, I can get that promotion that I've been seeking. We can even do this with Christian intentions. Let me give you a couple examples of this. If I can just be a part of this or that group and get connected with that girl, that maybe she'll notice me and then we can live happily ever after. Perhaps maybe if I just uh, get that person elected to the school board or elected to the city council, then all of my dreams of what I see in the Bible will be heaven on earth. If I just get them elected. Friends, do not be deceived by the pride that we see here in this psalm. Do you see that deceptiveness of our very selves? Do you see the utter danger of placing all of our hopes and all of our dreams into the hands of ourselves and instead of God? Truthfully, I I don't think David's intentions were exactly heinous. I don't think they were malicious in any way. I don't think they were bad. But the execution of how they were wanting the kingdom to expand and how they were going to control and to conquer these people, they mattered for him. And for us this morning, how we go about making decisions in light of the Lord's will, how we go about trying to spread the gospel, how we go about advancing the Lord's kingdom matters for us this morning as well. While we may, with the very best heart and intention, desire to see God's rule and reign here on this earth, and particularly here in Rapid City, in this community that we love, that we are trying to cultivate to help know the Lord, while we may do that with the very best intention and heart, how we go about that task matters, friend. Christian, I want to encourage you this morning. Do not be overcome by the delusion that perhaps the devil and his armies are winning any sort of battle here in your community. Do not be deceived that they're winning any sort of battles here in this country. Even if it looks like your city, your country, your state, wherever you're from, is falling apart, perhaps the Lord is using that time to do something in you. Perhaps he's using that time to do something in us as a church And I mean the big C church. Friends, perhaps maybe the Lord is making us all see hard things in this nation so that we as Christians will wake up. He wants us to wake up so that we can get our hearts and our minds aligned with the Lord and his purposes, his mission, not our own. He wants us to wake up, not so that we can accomplish our own earthly missions, so that instead we can see the kingdom of God be here on earth. But how we go about that matters, my friends. I've spent a lot of time talking to uh, my brothers and sisters in the room, but I want to talk to those of you who, who may not consider themselves to be Christian. 
I want to ask you a question. Have you reflected on maybe whether or not the destruction, the things that you're seeing in your life, the hard things that the Lord is making you see, have you reflected on maybe whether or not the Lord has allowed those things to happen because of some of the prior decisions that you've made? Perhaps you feel like you're having to see hard things because your conscious decisions to rebel against the holy God of the universe are beginning to take toll. While that may seem like a terrible place to be in, exactly as we see in verses 1 through 3, look at the hope that we can have according to verses 4 and 5. Look at how the psalmist speaks here. He reminds himself that he and his armies can run to God. Let me just reread those verses for us. You have set up a banner for those who fear you, that they may flee to it from the bow. That your beloved ones may be delivered. Give salvation by your right hand and answer us. Even though because of the nation of Israel, because of David's somewhat heart rebellion against God, even though that's still happening, they could always still run to God. And friend, for you, if you do not know the Lord and feel like your life is in such utter chaos and utter calamity that you can't run to him, did you know that you can still run to him just as God's people did then and just as we can do now? You can come to Jesus. He is the banner that is now set up for the people that fear and love God. So why can you, or why should you, come to Jesus? Why should you come to him with all of your brokenness and with all of your sin and with all of your desperation? Well, as we see in verse 4, because the Lord has set up a banner for those who fear him. And as we see, for those who run to that banner, who run to Jesus, they may be delivered from their impending destruction. You can almost hear the psalmist's desperation in the last, ver- last little bit of verse 5. You can just hear him as he says, Give salvation by your right hand and answer us. Oh God, please help us. It's almost like whenever my daughter is in her crib and she's ready to wake up and she thinks we're ignoring her. I mean, the cries, they just go much louder and louder and louder. And that's what we see. We see the cry heightened here in verse 5. We need to be moving on, but where we run to, friends, in our times of calamity, in our times of abandonment and loneliness, where we run to, it matters. And I pray for those of us here this morning that our faith, that our hope, where we would run to would be placed squarely in the hands of the God, in the hands of the only one who can save you from that impending destruction. If you find yourself needing to talk more about what that might look like in your life, or what that might mean for you to flee, to run to the banner that can only save you. Come and find me. Come and talk to Brent. We have pictures of the elders on the back of your bulletin. Find one of those familiar faces, and and we would love to listen to and talk you through what that might look like for you. So what we learn in these first chunk of verses is that we ought to run to God, even if our vain cries for help are seemingly a little too little and a little too late. But let's now discuss why we ought to run to God in verses 6 through 8, which will serve as our next point, a verified promise. A verified promise. If you look at verses 6 through 8, to be honest with you, there's not much to look at. There's nothing that like, kind of catches your eye and you're like, wow, I'm totally going to get that put on one of my coffee mugs. This, puts, this gives me so much hope in the Lord. I'm just going to suck at this mind. I'm going to put that right on my coffee mug. But I think there's more to it than just finding some sort of inspirational verse or some quote that we can hide in our heart all the time. It's, it's not just as simple as something that we can rest our laurels upon. And it's not as well as if the Lord is just a child saying, hey, this is mine, mine, mine. It's not that at all. Now, I think what the Lord is doing here is reminding David who the truly sovereign one is. He was reminding him who is in charge. And and how does he do this, friends? What does it say in the text? God has spoken. 
God speaks. The Lord, in all of his holiness, in all of his splendor, and in all of his majesty, speaks to David. He speaks to the kingdom of Israel. And he speaks to us this morning through his word. And he does this to remind them of who is really in charge, who is truly sovereign. With the sin of pride that had infiltrated Israel and that had infiltrated the heart of David and and all of the havoc that it was wreaking, would you not agree with me that they did not deserve to have the Lord speak to them? With everything that they had done, there was nothing that they could merit that would allow for God to say, yes, I will speak into this situation. If anything, they didn't deserve even a grunt or a whisper from God. And yet, he still speaks to them. They did not deserve to have the Lord intervene to speak into the situation. And yet, he does. And he does it with a word. And friends, these are powerful words that we see here in this morning. Let me just reread that. With exaltation, I will divide up Shechem and portion out the vale of Succoth. Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. Ephraim is my helmet. Judah is my scepter. Moab is my washbasin. Upon Edom, I cast my shoe. Over Philistia, I shout in triumph. The Lord declares to the ones who run to him in their destruction and in their distress, and he tells them, all of these nations, all of these peoples, they are mine. He takes the psalmist on a little past journey. He says, hey, flash back with me. And he takes him on a little trip and and shows him that Shechem and Gilead and Succoth And God's own tribes of Manasseh and Ephraim and Judah, they are all his. They have already become his. And then he speaks about the future reality of of Moab and Edom and Philistia. They will also all be his. And what's particularly interesting in verse 8 here is that these last three nations would end up being ruled by Israel after chapter 8. So if, if the setting is for instruction in the middle of all this battle, David is pinning these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, saying, Lord, you have promised that these things will come to pass. And he's saying, the Lord is speaking this way. This will happen. These nations will be his. And I think what's really interesting is that he doesn't just speak of these nations as countries or places that just need to be conquered and destroyed and just totally devastated. No, he ends up talking about them as servants. Even if they're lowly servants, he's still talking about them as if they will serve the holy, holy, holy God. It's as if this psalmist is trying to reorient his mind and and all the people's minds to remember that, yes, while things look terrible, while it looks like that we are in the middle of a terrible situation and that the Lord has not gone out to battle with us, while it may look like that, these people are his. God will accomplish his purposes for us, for his people, and he will also accomplish his purposes for these nations. I I really like how the English Standard Version uh, study Bible editor, and you might be able to see this if you have an ESV study Bible with you this morning, I, I really like how he helps us think through this situation. And they write, in regard to verses six through eight, they say, Israel exists to bring blessing to the Gentiles. In the time of David, this normally happened as these nations came under Israelite sovereignty. Thus, the military campaign is put in the context of Israel's mission. And I love this part here. Mere territorial expansion, as such, was not part of Israel's calling. While David and his kingdom were expanding, they would need to remember the reason and the promise for why they were even doing the very things that they were doing. God had promised that through Abraham and his descendants that they would be a blessing to all of the nations. God had promised that his set-apart people would be the people that would make his name known amongst all the world. And is here where God is saying, do not forget who ends up actually subjecting these nations. Do not forget who these nations will ultimately serve. 
Do not forget who they will end up bowing the knee to. It's not you, David. It's not you, Israel. It's me. It's me that they're going to serve. And so what we find here in this situation is a kind of arrogance and a kind of pride that Israel and David had incurred in their hearts. I can remember as a freshman in high school and as a teenager developing this kind of arrogance and probably still battling it, truth be told, as a 29-year-old. But in Southern terms, what was really happening whenever I got in high school, this kind of arrogance, what we call that is getting too big for your britches. Has anybody heard that term before? Okay, yeah. Uh, I can remember my dad specifically saying that a few times about me. Hey, you're getting a little too big for your britches here. But I can remember as a freshman talking back to my high school basketball coach uh, a handful of times. And and truth be told, he probably let me do that a little too much. Uh, He would make a decision or he would say something and I would talk back to him. It's totally disrespectful and honestly, I feel really terrible about it now. But I can vividly remember him during a very tense point against Follett, Texas, a basketball team in the small part of the panhandle of Texas. I can remember playing a basketball game against them and in my pride talking back to him during a timeout. And I mean, the game is close. Things are getting tense. The heat has turned up. And I think in all of my teenage wisdom, oh, now's the time to give my input about how he's coaching. And I remember, I will never forget this. I remember him looking at me straight in the face and saying, Tanner, shut up. It just right in my face. And I can tell you, I have never tried after that point. I, I mean this 100%. I never tried to, to give out any sort of coaching critique or any sort of advice after that for the rest of high school. It was totally game-changing for me as a basketball player. But ultimately, what had happened is I had forgotten my role. And I had forgotten who was truly in charge of the situation. And I needed to be reminded through tough truthful words that I needed to shut up. But I needed to be reminded of who I was in relation to who he was. And I needed to be reminded that he had way more experience in winning and in coaching than I ever did. It's very audacious of me to even think that I could do that, especially considering that my eighth grade year, we literally didn't win a single basketball game. So I don't know where this arrogance came from. But I think likewise, This is exactly what we find here in this psalm. David and the people, they need to be reminded that it is God who has the last word, not them. And they should take confidence in that truth because not once has the Lord's word failed them. Up to this point in the history of Israel, not once have any of God's promises not come to pass. He had promised long ago that his purpose and plans, they would be accomplished by his set-apart people. That he would accomplish them through those set-apart people. And they needed to be reminded of that promise. And they needed to be reminded of that promise, even when it felt like things were failing all around them. Friends, especially my brothers and sisters here in the room, I think we need this reminder more than ever. I think we need to be told who's in charge How often do we speak and proclaim, even here at this church, that the Lord is sovereign and that he's in control. He's got the whole world in his hands. And yet, in our actions, in our words, we do the total opposite of that belief. How often do we fall into that trap, friends? Brother and sister, I think you and I need to be reminded here this morning that God's got this. God's got this, not us. What he has promised, it will come to pass. And there is nothing, 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 nothing in the whole entire universe that can thwart that reality. Rulers will come and go. Presidents will be elected and leave office. You and I might even die and be passed away. The grass will wither. The flower will fade. But not one single promise, not one single word of the Lord will not pass without it coming to fruition. Friends, we should take great hope in God's power and God's sovereignty in this world. It is a verified promise that we can rest in. Take hope, Christian, and place it not in your own hands, but in the Lord's sovereign hand. Because his promises, 
and his very self are eternal and steadfast. While we pass away and teeter-totter, the Lord is steadfast. Place your hopes in him this morning, friends. So it's in light of this reality that the psalmist responds to the Lord. It's in light of the reality that the Lord is sovereign, that the psalmist responds to the Lord in our last three verses, which will serve as our last point, a valiant prayer. A valiant prayer. So God informs the psalmist of his promise and that he needs to not worry. And so we find one last prayer in light of this reality, in light of the word that the Lord has spoken to him. And he prays. Isn't that interesting? In light of God speaking, he doesn't rush to action. He prays. And he prays that the Lord, that God would help. If it's the Lord's mission to reign over these nations, then the Lord must be with Israel if they are to win the battle over them. If it's the Lord's purpose to accomplish that, then they must need the Lord to be involved with that. But now, this perspective, this request is new. Do you see the difference between how he talks to God in verses 1 through 5 versus how he talks to him in 9 through 12? It's totally different. After the Lord speaks, he's now reoriented to how he ought to relate to God and how he ought to speak to him and how he ought to come to him in prayer. I debated whether or not I should make the last bit of verse 11 and the first part of verse 12 my main idea, but I just want to reread these verses for us this morning. Let me just reread it real quickly. Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? Have you not rejected us, O God? You do not go forth, O God, with our armies. O grant us help against the foe, for vain is the salvation of man. With God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. Like I said, I I really do think maybe uh, in hindsight I probably should have used the last bit of 11, the first part of 12 as the main idea. But this is certainly the pinnacle of the passage that we find here this morning. Vain is the salvation of man. With God we shall do valiantly. The psalmist, David, he comes to the realization in light of God's revelation to him that there is nothing to be accomplished, nothing to be gained, nothing matters if the Lord would not be in it. And now... He comes to the Lord, not in pride or in arrogance, but now in humility. And we see him asking for the Lord to be with them as they go into battle. And not only does he say, be with us, but who is it that's going to ultimately defeat his enemies? Last line. It is he, the Lord, who will tread down our foes. With the psalmist's need and the desperation heightened, David and the nation of Israel can now ask in the right heart posture for help from the Lord. I think if we're being honest with ourselves, we're all guilty of praying more like verses 1 through 5, where we recite the truth, but nothing about our hearts are in it. But friends, what we see especially here in this psalm, that oftentimes comes with us not humbling ourselves before the Lord. We often pray to get God's stamp of approval rather than petitioning from our hearts for him to intervene because we know in our deepest recesses of our hearts and minds that if he does not intervene, we would be conducting in vanity. I know that for me, personally, This part of the psalm convicted me so much as a pastor. If I'm being honest with you guys, I far too often think if if I can just say or do the right thing, and my brother elders will know this, or if we can just implement this particular policy, if I can just do this or that, or have certain people in different places, if I can just do that, then, then things will work out well for me. The Lord will give fruit to my ministry if I just if I just do X, Y, and Z. That is such an awful posture for the work of ministry that God has called me, Brent, and the other elders to be into. It's such an awful heart pasture. And I'm a fool, and we're fools, if we believe even for a single second 
that we only need to just simply acknowledge the Lord and say, hey, God, we're going to go do this, and then we go and try and do it, and that he will just immediately give fruit to it. We would be fools if we thought that way. And if we go down that kind of path, and Christian, if you go down that kind of path where you feel like you just need God's rubber stamp of approval, there's nothing that really separates you and separates me from the hellacious preaching and teaching of the, of the prosperity gospel. We will function like prosperity gospel believers if all we think we need to do is just throw up a prayer to God and say, hey, I'm going to go do this. But to encourage you all, and especially the members here at South Kingdom Baptist Church, the leadership that's over you is totally the opposite of that. We aren't just looking for that rubber stamp. I've been so encouraged by the way they pray for me, by the way they pray for my family, and most importantly, how they pray for all of you. I have been so encouraged how every month we spend an hour on our knees begging that the Lord would intervene in different matters in your lives. I take great joy in getting to pray with these brothers every single Sunday that the Lord would work in these services right here. Did you know that you have been prayed for even before you came into this room? Friends, every single Sunday, every month they do this. And they pray that people would be saved and they pray that you all as members of this church would be strengthened to do the Lord's will. I'm going to take a brief aside and, and, and talk to my fellow elders and to my fellow pastors here, but I pray that this kind of posture would not be something that we just do every Sunday and once a month on Monday. Brothers, I would encourage us that we should make it a daily habit to pray to God on behalf of our people. We should every single day be lifting up this congregation that the Lord has graciously given us and ask him to intervene in their lives. Brothers, we need Jesus to be involved. We will be doing van- vainly if the Lord is not involved. And so I encourage you to pray with desperate need that the Holy Spirit would move through this congregation. Brothers, I pray that you would make that a daily habit. Because as we see in the psalm, It's ultimately our posture that matters as we go to battle for this congregation. Brothers, every single day we have a chance to fight for our people. Will you do that by wearing out your knees? I know that I need to be challenged on that, and I pray that we can do that together as a body of elders. So I also pray that the Lord would protect us from our foolish pride and foolish arrogance, thinking that we can accomplish anything without the Lord. Lord, keep us from that. Friends, do you see the oxymoron that's kind of going on in the psalm here? He's saying it's in humility that we can be valiant. It's in our deepest need that we can find strength. It's in our weakness that God defeats our foes. At the very point where they felt like that they were going to be defeated, that is when God intervened. Friends, I, I, and I mean this 100%. Brent mentioned this in his prayer, and I didn't even talk to him about this, but we don't invite you, and we don't talk about all the time the first and third Sunday prayer every Sunday that we're here because it's not just a simple good thing to do. We are asking you to come and do this because it is a time for us to come together in prayer in desperate need for God. It's a time for us to remember, if the Lord does not intervene, we will accomplish nothing. It's a time of prayer where we can pray for that friend or that family member that we've been trying to reach with the gospel for years. It's that time where we can say, Lord, if if you want to see something go on, if we want to see revival happen at Pine Ridge Reservation, it's a place where we ask, Lord, would you be in that? It's a time where we say, Lord, if, if you want to keep this congregation together, if, if you want to make sure that it displays your glory and displays your power, then please do that here. Friends, 
we must cultivate a desperate need for God. We aren't just inviting you to those times of prayer just because it's a good thing to do. We're, we're doing it because it is the right culture and the right heart posture that we ought to have before the Lord. Let me just throw out this scenario to you. Wouldn't it be amazing if the culture and the testimony of South Canyon Baptist Church was of one of desperate need for the Lord and it's seen by how we pray and how the Lord answers those prayers. Wouldn't that be such a testimony of grace to this community? Friends, I pray that the testimony of this church would be that we sought out, that we cried to the Lord, and that he spoke and answered. I pray that you would join us in that. We ought to conclude. With God we shall do valiantly. It is he who treads down our foes. As we take stock and examine ourselves and our lives, which category do you land in? Is it prideful vanity or humble valiance? I pray that for every person here who calls themselves Christian, that there would not be a single instance in our lives where we think we got this. I pray that that would not be the culture of this church where we think, oh, we got this. We don't got this. What a great reality. God's got this. We need to be humbled, friends, because vain is the salvation and the plans of man. We need to be humbled because we know, as Paul says, it is those who humble themselves in the sight of the Lord that he will lift up. It is those that humiliate themselves before the Lord that he will exalt. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you in prayer. And as Brent asked earlier, we prayed that the word that was spread forth, it would be effective. And Lord, we pray that you would intervene in all things that we ask. Lord, we don't pray for countries like Afghanistan just because it's a good and right thing to do. We pray because, Lord, we need you to intervene so that those people would be saved. And we pray for this church. We pray for this church because, Lord, without you, we can do nothing. And we are nothing. So, Lord, please help us. Help us to develop a posture of desperation. Help us to develop a posture of need before you. And, Lord, as we come before you in this last song, I pray that the words of the song, Lord, I need you, would ring ever true. That they would ring ever true in our hearts and in our lives, not just in this building, but throughout our lives. So, God, please help us. We are desperate for you, God, and we ask that you would be with us. And, Lord, we're so thankful that even in our desperation, you sent us your Son to save us. When we were most desperate, that's when you came onto the scene. And Lord, it's in our desperation that we can still run to you. So Father, help us to live, help us to walk in light of that reality. We ask this all in your son's name. Amen.